You are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast, where I discuss writing specifically today, Stephen King on writing. Oh my goodness. Wow. We're getting back into Stephen King after the two episodes where I bashed Stephen King's writing, even though I've made it perfectly clear that I have read plenty of Stephen King and even consider him to be a good writer. Oh, well, you know, my wife is in the other room taking a shower. So all you perverts out there can listen to the water running in the other room and think about that. Why am I revisiting Stephen King? Well, for one thing, this is a writing podcast. This is the book that most writers, especially online, seem to reference as if it's a textbook. Much to our friend Zev Good's chagrin. Not only did I have to read this in college, I read it before I started college because I was a writer and Stephen King fan. And I had it assigned, portions of it assigned to me at least, in uh, my English 1101 course back in 2010. All these rules that creative writing professors come up with I don't know what book they're pulling it from, but I know a few of them are pulling it from this book because they assigned it to us and they talked about it. And, you know, one of the things that comes up most often is don't use adverbs. Use simple dialogue tags. Show, don't tell, la-di-da. But we're going to get into it after, you know, about the 10-minute mark, as always. For those of you who are listening for the first time and wondering, who this obnoxious fucker is, who is so audaciously speaking about Stephen King, the greatest writer to ever live, well, I'm Patrick Attaway, and if you would like to support the podcast, I don't have anything for you to donate to. I don't have a Patreon. I don't have ads on this podcast. It's completely free wherever you listen. But if you would like to support the podcast, if you would like to support me, if you have an interest in... In my writing, you can go buy my books on Amazon. Just search for Patrick Attaway. I wrote a little novel called Demise of the Trinity. And you can listen to it on this podcast from start to finish with my commentary as well. But my latest book is Green Skin. It came out in, I think, March. It's probably the best thing that I've ever written. I'm also a musician and I record under the name lurking vowel and you can find that on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon music, Apple music, iTunes, wherever you stream music. I'm also on Deezer. I don't know what Deezer is, but I'm there. You know what else is on Deezer? Deez nuts. Lame jokes aside, let's talk about another lame joke known as Fender guitars. I've ranted on here about Fender before, but I've been playing my Strat a lot lately and I knew it would come full circle for me so I go through phases with guitars and I get bored with playing the same guitar over and over that's why I've I've owned over 80 do you want me to go over the list on here I'll go over the list on here I have a whole word document full of every single guitar that I've ever owned do you want to do that today we'll do that today but before that it's because I've been Back into Johnny Marr of the Smiths. Did he ever really leave my heart? No. But the thing is, is that I used to own a Rickenbacker 
360 six string because Peter Buck is my hero. And when I got that guitar, I owned it for less than a year and I traded it for a Strat <laughs> because uh, it didn't make me sound anything like Peter Buck and it had terrible feedback problems. It was a pain in the ass all around. I It's probably the one guitar that I both regret getting rid of but also don't I have two other guitars like that uh, Fender Jazzmaster that I had in high school although uh, honestly I don't really regret that that much I have I'm an adult with adult money I can buy a, a, a Fender Jazzmaster but I'm not going to support Fender but beyond that even if I didn't I don't want a Jazzmaster anymore and I also had a Squire 51 with upgraded pickups and that was an awesome guitar and I guess because it was a Squire I eventually just sold it. A few years ago I sold my Epiphone Casino Coupe which was a smaller version of the Epiphone Casino and right now I'm like ugh I really want an Epiphone Casino. I get a Christmas bonus this year and I think I might use it to get a casino. But yesterday I went from playing my Rickenbacker 12 string and turning up the compression on my Wampler Ego compressor and playing through my Marshall amp and I was like this sounds like Peter Buck this sounds more like Peter Buck than the Rickenbacker that I had that was the same Rickenbacker that he used the six string and then I unplugged my Rickenbacker and pulled out my strap and it's also sounded like Johnny Marr and Peter Buck. Because the thing about guitar tone is it's not nearly as mystical and scientific as people would like to think it is. It's a lot more basic and a lot less complicated than manufacturers of guitars and guitar gear would like to, you to think. The biggest part of the equation is your amplifier. And then if you have a compressor running, that's going to change your tone. Pretty much, this is, this is my, this is something that after almost two decades of playing guitar, actually it has been two decades, um, I have discovered for myself that the guitar itself is probably 10% of your tone. Most of it comes from the way you play and the amplifier and anything between the guitar and the amplifier. So every time I see another Epiphone versus Gibson or Squire versus Fender video, I cringe. Because that's all marketing bullshit, okay? I own a Gibson Les Paul. It's a great guitar. Now, I've already detailed my qualms with it. I had to work on it when I got it brand new. However, it's a great guitar. The fret work on it is immaculate. But I got an Epiphone Firebird this year that happened to have the best fret work of any Epiphone that I've owned previously. So I don't know if the company as a whole has stepped up their game when it came to fret work or what, but the Epiphones that have been coming out lately have been amazing. The, the Gibsons have been amazing. What's the difference? Well, about a grand or two. Because when you buy a Gibson, you're investing in the brand. 
So when you sell that guitar, you know, in five years, because you're going to get bored with it like I am. I'm going to keep my Les Paul, though. The resale value will not depreciate the same way that an Epiphone will. That's literally it for me. Otherwise, the sound difference between an Epiphone Les Paul and a Gibson Les Paul through whatever amp and effects you're using is if they're especially if they've got the same pickups the the difference is almost not even existent here's the thing aside from single coil versus humbucker what will affect your guitar tone more than you realize is the scale length of the guitar so a rickenbacker and a gibson actually have more in common than fender and rickenbacker so a Rickenbacker has the same scale length as a Gibson, allegedly. And honestly, a Les Paul sounds really good clean. But aside from that, a Rickenbacker without compression, just through the same settings used for any other guitar through your amp, it's not going to sound anything like the recordings that you, you love from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. When I was channeling my inner Peter Buck and Johnny Marr yesterday with my Rickenbacker, I had the compression all the way up on my Ego compressor, which is not how I normally play it. And I was playing through my Marshall, which is a tube amp. And even if I want to sound like Fables era Peter Buck... Or early era Johnny Marr, I have a Roland Jazz Chorus. That chorus on that amp will make just about any guitar sound like that. And before we get into on writing, all you guitar players out there, if you're using all pedals with true bypass, and you don't have any buffers, you don't have any boss pedals, have at least one boss pedal or some other buffered bypass pedal, it will improve your tone immensely. Okay? So let's get into Stephen King on writing a memoir of the craft. And we open the book, and it's more praise for Stephen King's on writing, as if we needed more of that. And there's two pages of it. Well, one and a half pages. And then, for some reason, we have quotations from other people. And then we have a first forward... And I'm going to skip that. We have a second Ford. I'm going to skip that. And then we have a third Ford. I'm going to skip that. And uh, are we even in... Let's see. Are we in the first chapter or not? Yeah. And, of course, the first sentence mentions Mary Carr. For those of you unaware, I really like Mary Carr. I read her book on here, her book about writing autobiography on this podcast because... It was on my oral exam for my master's degree last year. I was stunned by Mary Carr's memoir, The Liar's Club. Not just by its ferocity, its beauty, and by her delightful grasp of the vernacular, but by its, ton its totality. She is a woman who remembers everything about her early years. I'm not that way. I lived in an odd, herky-jerky childhood raised by a single parent who moved around a lot in my earliest years, and who, I am not completely sure of this, may have farmed my brother and me out to one of her sisters for a while because she was economically or emotionally unable to cope with us for a time. 
Perhaps she was only chasing our father who piled up all sorts of bills and then did a run out when I was two and my brother David was four. If so, she never succeeded in finding him. My mom, Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King, was one of America's early liberated women, but not by choice. Mary Carr presents her childhood in an almost unbroken panorama. Mine is a fogged out landscape from which occasional memories appear like isolated trees, the kind that look as if they might like to grab and eat you. What follows are some of those memories, plus assorted snapshots from the somewhat more coherent days of my adolescence and young manhood. This is not an autobiography. It is rather a kind of curriculum vitae, my attempt to show how one writer was formed, not how one writer was made. I don't believe writers can be made, either by circumstances or by self-will, although I did believe those things once. The equipment comes with the original package, yet it is by no means unusual equipment. I believe large numbers of people have at least some talent as writers and storytellers, and that those talents can be strengthened and sharpened. If I didn't believe that, writing a book like this would be a waste of time. This is how it was for me. That's all. A disjointed growth process in which ambition, desire, luck, and a little talent all played a part. Don't bother trying to read between the lines. And don't look for a through line. There are no lines. Only snapshots. Most out of focus. So, here's the thing. This is very well written. Now... If you haven't read this, if you're not reading along, I don't expect anyone to read along when I read, when I do this, but there are stylistic choices in these opening paragraphs that I wouldn't do. However, they work, do they not? I mean, this was a very smooth read. I didn't have any parts to trip me up. I didn't have any parts that made me scratch my head and say something that was negative. This is all very good. This first page of On Writing proves that Stephen King is a good writer. Now, another thing that I want to note. This is a book called On Writing. It is subtitled A Memoir of the Craft. Now, I don't think all editions of this book have A Memoir of the Craft as the subtitle. I might be wrong. However, there are people out there who talk about this book as if it is the Bible for writers. It is actually, as it says, a memoir of the craft. It is not a textbook. It actually doesn't get to all this on writing bullshit for quite some time. I think... I'm flipping through the book, and I don't think, yes, not until page 141 do we get to anything regarding actual writing process. That's not to say that he doesn't talk about writing in the first part of the book, but for about 140 pages, it's just Stephen King. We're not going to read much of the memoir side of on writing because that wouldn't give me much to nitpick would it because that's what this is all about I'm a writer I'm in my 30s 
I have a writing podcast. I have books. I have a master's degree. I'm at least qualified to bullshit Stephen King on a podcast, okay? So before anyone out there is like, eh, Stephen King, just know that you have the ability to turn this podcast off and not listen, okay? Okay, so anything negative or positive I say about Stephen King is my opinion only. It does not mean that I think that Stephen King should be put in a gulag somewhere. It means that Stephen King and I don't necessarily see eye to eye on writing, and that's okay because he doesn't know I even fucking exist. I'm punching up for all intents and purposes. He's a lot more successful than I am. Anything I say on this podcast is not going to result in, in him not receiving royalties from his previous books. It's not going to result in a cancellation of Stephen King. Why am I saying all this? Because I shit-talked Carrie and The Shining and Rage on here. I intended to do a full series on Stephen King. And after that second episode, I was like, this isn't fair to Stephen King fans. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to Stephen King, even though I don't know the man. It doesn't matter. But realistically speaking, this podcast is about entertainment. And so that's what we're going to do. If I have something negative to say, take it as a joke. So on page 44, I just flipped through here and thought this portion of the book seemed interesting before we get into the writing portion. I wasn't much interested in the printing process, and I wasn't interested at all in the arcana of first developing and then reproducing photographs. I didn't care about putting hearse shifters in cars making cider or seeing if a certain formula would send a plastic rocket into the stratosphere. What I cared about most between 1958 and 1966 was movies. As the 50s gave way to the 60s, there were only two movie theaters in the area, both in Lewiston. I don't know if I pronounced that right. It may be Lewiston, but I'm from the South. I'll say it how I want. The Empire was the first run house showing Disney Pictures, epic Bible epics, and musicals in which widescreen ensembles of well-scrubbed folks danced and sang. I went to these if I had a ride. A movie was a movie, after all, but I didn't like them very much. They were boringly wholesome. They were predictable. During the parent trap, I kept hoping Haley Mills would run into Vic Morrow from the Blackboard Jungle. That would have livened things up a little, by God. I felt that one look at Vic's switchblade knife and gimlet gaze would have put Haley's piddling domestic problems in some kind of reasonable perspective. And when I lay in bed at night under my eve listening to the wind in the trees of the rats in the attic. It was not Debbie Reynolds or Tammy or Sandra Dee as Gidget that I dreamed of, but Yvette Vickers from Attack of the Giant Leeches or Luana Anders from Dementia 13. Never mind Sweet, never mind Uplifting, never mind Snow White and the Seven Goddamn Dwarves. At 13, I wanted monsters that ate whole cities, radioactive corpses that came out of the ocean and ate surfers, and girls in black bras who looked like trailer trash. This is actually kind of relatable for me. And for those of you who 
have never listened to this podcast before, I relate to writing through my own writing because that's my point of reference, or I relate to it through other writers' writing. But what he's talking about is essentially setting up every single Stephen King story you've ever read. He talks later in this book about how he builds entire novels from just scenarios in his head. What if this happened here? What if this person from this story met this person from that story? Etc. And when I was a kid, I played the hell out of video games. Video games are now bigger than movies, music, books, TV, everything. Video games make more money in any other sector of the entertainment industry. It's the biggest thing out there right now. And when I was a kid, you had Grand Theft Auto on the PlayStation 2. The biggest Grand Theft Auto, not in terms of sales, but in terms of fandom, has got to be San Andreas, right? One of the things that I loved about San Andreas is that it came with a mountain of cheat codes. And so every time I would boot up that game, it meant that I was going to play for a few hours because I had to get through all these cheat codes that I wanted to use at the beginning of the game. And one of those cheat codes limited the amount of cars on the street. So I spent hours in this world that wasn't intended to be played like this, mind you. But I've always loved these games like that, like Minecraft. There's nothing in Minecraft. If you play creative mode and you have all the monsters turned off, it's just you and the world. I was thinking last night, why isn't there a game with a fully designed city like Grand Theft Auto, not necessarily violence, not necessarily mission-oriented, just a giant nothing. You can drive anywhere you want. You can go into any building you want. You can explore. Why isn't that a thing? Maybe it is. What else did I do when I was in high school? I fantasized throughout the day. I daydreamed a lot. And... I thought about the world ending. This isn't new for me. When I was working at the nursing home, I would get up at four in the morning and on Thursdays, I would have to clean the deep fryer. And as I was hosing out the deep fryer, looking out into the woods early in the morning, this is right around the time when my wife and I were watching Walking Dead for the first time together. And I was like, you know, if a zombie showed up through those woods, it would mean that I could go home. And I could just go back to sleep. The world's ending. But when I was in drama class in high school, I was surrounded by all these pretty girls. And, you know, I wrote a short story called Murmur of a Child. And it's about the world ending in this weird apocalyptic event. Well, society ending, I should say. The world is still there. But everyone gets paired up with someone to mate with, to reproduce, and it sounds like some weird incel fantasy. But, you know, I was a high school boy. I had a girlfriend, but I still thought about other girls, obviously. And so I would think about, you know, some catastrophic catastrophic event, and we were the only people left. Both of those elements 
are what eventually inspired Demise of the Trinity, my first novel that came out in 2020. So I know all too well how this teenage daydreaming ends up with (laughs) things that the world never asked to happen. I'm going to skip ahead to page 47. Of all the Poe pictures, the one that affected Chris and me the most deeply was The Pit and the Pendulum, written by Richard Matheson and filmed in both widescreen and technicolor. Pitt took a bunch of standard gothic ingredients and turned them into something special. It might have been the last really great studio picture before George Romero's ferocious indie The Night of the Living Dead came along and changed everything forever. The best scene, the one which froze Chris and me into our seats, depicted John Kerr digging into a castle wall and discovering the corpse of his sister, who is obviously buried alive. I've never forgotten the corpse's close-up shot through a red filter and distorting lens which elongated the face into a huge scream. On the long hitch home that night, if rides were slow in coming, you might end up walking four or five miles and not get home until well after dark. I had a wonderful idea. I would turn the pit in the pendulum into a book. Would novelize it as monarch books had novelized such undying film classics as Jack the Ripper, Gorgo, and Conga. But I wouldn't just write this masterpiece. I would also print it using the drum press in our basement and sell copies at school. As it was conceived, so it was done. Working with the care and deliberation of which I would later be critically acclaimed, I turned out my novel version of The Pit and the Pendulum in Two Days, composing directly and distensils from which I'd print. Although no copies of that particular masterpiece survive, at least to my knowledge, I believe it was eight pages long, each page single-spaced, and paragraph breaks kept to an absolute minimum. Each stencil cost 19 cents, remember? I printed sheets on both sides, just as in a standard book, and added a title page on which I drew a rudimentary pendulum dripping small black blotches which I hoped would look like blood. At the last moment, I realized I'd forgotten to identify the publishing house. After a half a book or so of pleasant mulling, I typed the words A-V-I-B book in the upper right corner of the title page. V-I-B stood for Very Important Book. I ran off about 40 copies of The Pit and the Pendulum, blissfully unaware that I was in violation of every plagiarism and copyright statute in the history of the world. My thoughts were focused almost entirely on how much money I might make if my story was a hit at school. The stencils had cost me $1.71, Having to use up one whole stencil for the title page seemed a hideous waste of money, but you had to look good, I reluctantly decided. You had to go out there with a bit of the old attitude. The paper had cost another two bits or so, and the staples were free, crib from my brother. After some further thought, I priced VIB number one, The Pit and the Pendulum, by Steve King at a quarter a copy. I thought I might be able to sell ten. My mother would buy one to get me started. She could always be counted on. And that would add up to two fifty. I'd make about forty cents, which would be enough to finance another educational trip to the Ritz. If I sold two more, I could get a big sack of popcorn and a Coke as well. The Pit and the Pendulum turned out to be my first bestseller. 
I took the entire print run to my school in a book bag. In 1961, I would have been an 8th grader at Durham's newly built four-room elementary school. And by noon that day, I had sold two dozen. By the end of lunch hour, when word had gotten around that the lady buried in the wall, I had sold three dozen. I had nine dollars and change weighing down the bottom of my book bag upon which Durham's answer to Daddy Cool had carefully printed most of the lyrics to The Lion Sleeps Tonight and was walking around in a kind of dream, unable to believe my sudden ascension to previously unsuspected realms of wealth. It all seemed too good to be true. It was. When the school day ended at 2 o'clock, I was summoned to the principal's office where I was told I couldn't turn the school into a marketplace, especially not Miss Hisler said, to sell such trash as the pit and the pendulum. Her attitude didn't surprise me. Miss Hisler had been the teacher at my previous school, the one rumor at Methodist Corners, where I went to 5th and 6th grades. During that time, she had spied me reading a rather sensational teenage rumble novel, The Amboy Dukes by Irvin Shulman, and had taken away. This was just more of the same, and I was disgusted with myself for not seeing the outcome in advance. In those days, we called someone who did an idiotic thing a dumber. Pronounced dubba, if you were from Maine. I just dubbed up big time. What I don't understand, Stevie, she said, is why you'd write junk like this in the first place. You're talented. Why do you want to waste your abilities? She had rolled up a copy of VIB number one and was brandishing at me the way a person might brandish a rolled up newspaper at a dog that had piddled on the rug. She waited for me to answer. To her credit, the question was not entirely rhetorical, but I had no answer to give. I was ashamed. I have spent a good many years since, too many I think, being ashamed about what I write. I think I was 40 before I realized that almost every writer of fiction and poetry who has ever published a line has been accused by someone of wasting his or her God-given talent. Amen, brother. If you write, or paint, or dance, or sculpt, or sing, I suppose, someone will try to make you feel lousy about it. That's all. I'm not editorializing. Just trying to give you the facts as I see them. Miss Hisler told me I would have to give everyone's money back. I did so with no argument, even to those kids who insisted on keeping their copies. I ended up losing money on the deal, after all. But when summer vacation came, I printed four dozen copies of a new story, an original called The Invasion of the Star Creatures. I I sold all but four or five. I guess that means I won in the end, at least in a financial sense. But in my heart, I stayed ashamed. I kept hearing Miss Hissler asking why I wanted to waste my talent, why I wanted to waste my time, why I wanted to write junk. This section that I just read has made me incredibly thoughtful, and I don't know what quite to say. I want to read this one part again. I was ashamed. I have spent a many good years since, too many I think, being ashamed about what I write. I think I was 40 before I realized that almost every writer of fiction and poetry who has ever published a line has been accused of someone voicing his or her God-given talent. Now, as an author, 
I have never been accused of wasting my God-given talent because uh, people who generally don't like you and your writing will not admit that you have any form of talent. They will just drag you from start to finish and not say anything positive about you. That's the way of the world now. But even Stephen King, who didn't like the book American Psycho, said it was bad fiction written by a good author. So he at least, you know, it was a backhanded compliment, but it was a compliment nonetheless. People don't even bother giving backhanded compliments anymore. <laughs> but there's this concern that all authors have. Am well, I can't say all authors, can I? I can really only speak for myself. So let's just get into this, I guess. I have always wanted to write both genre and literary fiction, the kind of shit that was assigned to me in college. But I don't know why, because I don't like a lot of literary fiction. I have read a lot of it. I'm very familiar with the form and its tropes, what makes literary fiction. Some people who read Greenskin may not agree with that, but uh, I would say that you missed the point. What's even more wild about that is only one person said something negative about Greenskin. Everyone else I know who read it liked it. They got it. No complaints. My mother did say that one chapter was R-rated. I would say that multiple chapters were R-rated. However, that book means a lot to me. All of my books are like my children. I don't have one that I don't like. In terms of my novels, at least, there are other books that I've put out there that I don't like. I don't read a lot of genre fiction, though. The genre fiction that I read is generally comic books. I love Batman. I I think last year went through a whole run of Spider-Man. And I read a lot of X-Men growing up. I love comics. I love the characters. I love the fact that they both have silly abilities, but also have very human experiences. Mark Hamill compared the Joker to a Shakespearean character. He's someone that any actor, who's worth their salt at least can pick up and give their own variation of. Even, I think Ed Norton was just being pretentious, but he also compared the Hulk, which is one of the worst Marvel movies out there. He compared the Hulk to a Shakespearean character as well. People who take the form seriously can make very good results when they want to. Sometimes we go into it thinking that we want to make the best thing ever and we get the worst thing ever, and that's fine too. But when Ralph Ellison, everyone out there who's listening to this podcast is rolling their eyes already, but when Ralph Ellison set out to write the great American novel, he wrote Invisible Man. Has anything that Stephen King wrote ever qualified or been listed in potential nominations for the great American book or novel no but what does that even fucking mean the great american novel where did that come from does it matter the novel is still a very young form it is relatively new it is still an experimental form and you're never gonna know how to write a novel until you 
tried doing it and you finished one. And that can take years. So why would a book, even Invisible Man, which is tremendous, why would that qualify for great American novel? Is the country ending soon? Are there not more novels coming out? Are there not more aspiring writers out there trying to tell their story? There's no way on God's green earth that anything that I've ever written would be considered the greatest of anything. Now, that's not to say that I don't love my books. I don't think that they're great. But I'm the only person who needs to worry about it. If I write what I consider to be a great novel, who the hell cares? That's my work. That's my baby. That's my child. There are millions, billions of children out there. And when you have a child, that's something that I haven't experienced, but um, when you have a child, you think that they're the greatest. And that, that only matters to you, and it should only matter to you. Not everyone's going to think that your child is amazing. But you will, no matter what. Sometimes your children grow up and fail, but that doesn't mean you don't love them. I'm pretty sure Jeffrey Dahmer's dad still loved him. My allergies are going fucking insane, so I had a fisherman's friend a moment ago. You you might have been able to tell, and I've just had... The other night, this may be a little disgusting to you, but the other night I woke up choking, and I had just like the biggest chunk of post-nasal drip ever in my throat and uh, it took me a while to recover from that and go back to sleep but I was just pulling out yet another tissue from my Kleenex and I I had a memory surface I thought I'd share it with you it's the end of the year we are reflective I promise I'm going to read more of this here in a moment but I it just came to mind I wanted to share it And Steve might be listening. Not Stephen King, mind you. My friend Steve. He was my high school math teacher. We had um, first trigonometry and then statistics. I wasn't very good at either. Before I had his class, I was somewhat confident at math. But uh, I think that it was just the... uh, I don't know. I don't want to speculate on why I sucked in that class, but I loved Steve. Uh, he, he liked Primus. He got me into dead Kennedys and, and Mojo Nixon. And as I was pulling out these tissues from the box every morning, I would go see him, uh, and I would steal two tissues from his box. I would fold them together and then that would be my snot rag for the day. And he eventually caught on to that. And he's like, oh, you got your snot rag for the day. But another thing that came to mind was uh, I didn't eat breakfast most days. But occasionally the cafeteria would have something that I would want. Usually a donut. And we weren't supposed to take the food out of the cafeteria. But of course I did. And he let me eat it in his classroom. But he would turn around at his desk and I'd have my back turned to him, hoping that he wouldn't notice that I was eating a donut in his classroom. <laughs> and he'd say, what you eating? <laughs> it's just a memory that popped up. I used to have a bookmark that was made for me by a girl that I later dated. Um, 
and it had a drawing of him on it as uh, like chibi. He had big eyes and a a ridiculous beard and hair, and it had a little thing. I don't remember exactly what it said about him, but she thought he was adorable. We have made it to page 141. There are no bad dogs, according to the title of a popular training manual. But don't tell that to the parent of a child mauled by a pit bull or a Rottweiler. He or she is apt to bust your beak for that. And no matter how much I want to encourage the man or woman trying for the first time to write seriously, I can't lie and say there are no bad writers. Sorry, but there are lots of bad writers. Some are on staff at your local newspaper, usually reviewing little theater productions or pontificating about the local sports teams. Some have scribbled their way to homes in the Caribbean, leaving a trail of pulsing adverbs, wooden characters, and vile passive voice constructions behind them. Others hold forth at open mic poetry slams, wearing black turtlenecks and wrinkled khaki pants. They spout doggerel about my angry lesbian breast and the tilted alley where I cried my mother's name. I think that last line could get him canceled today, but we'll move on. Writers form themselves into the pyramid we see in all areas of human talent and human creativity. Above them is a group which is slightly smaller but large and welcoming. These are the competent writers. They may also be found on your staff of your local newspapers, on the racks of your local bookstore, and at poetry readings on open mic night. These are folks who somehow understand that although a lesbian may be angry, her breast will remain breast. The next level is much smaller. These are the really good writers. Above them, above almost all of us, are the Shakespeare's, the Faulkner's, the Yeats's, Shaw's, Yador Welty's. They are geniuses, divine accidents, gifted in a way which is beyond our ability to understand let alone attain. Shit. Most geniuses aren't able to understand themselves, and many of them lead miserable lives, realizing, at least on some level, that they are nothing but un- but fortunate freaks. The intellectual version of runaway model, oh, runway models, Jesus, who just happen to be born with the right cheekbones and with breasts which fit the image of an age. I'm approaching the heart of this book with two theses. Both simple. The first is that good writing consists of mastering the fundamentals, vocabulary, grammar, the elements of style, and then filling the third level of your toolbox with the right instruments. The second is that while it is impossible to make a competent writer out of a good out of a bad writer, and while it is equally impossible to make a great writer out of a good one, it is possible, with lots of hard work, dedication, and timely help, to make a good writer out of a merely competent one. I'm afraid this idea is rejected by lots of critics and plenty of writing teachers as well. Many of these li- many of these are liberals in their politics, but crustaceans in their chosen fields. My God, that is... Oh, Stephen King gets it, okay? I'm here to say Stephen King gets it. Men and women who would take to the streets to protest the Exclusion of African Americans or Native Americans from the local country club are often the same men and women who tell their classes that writing ability is fixed and immutable. Once a hack, always a hack. 
Even if a writer rises in the estimation of an influential critic or two, he or she always carries his or her early reputation along like a respectable married woman who was a wild child as a teenager. My wife. Some people never forget, that's all. And a good deal of literary criticism serves only to reinforce a caste system which is as old as the intellectual snobbery which nurtured it. Raymond Chandler may be recognized now as an important figure in 20th century American literature, an early voice describing the anonymy of urban life in the years after World War II. But there are plenty of critics who will reject such a, judge, such a judgment out of hand. He's a hack, they cry indignantly, a hack with pretensions, the worst kind, the kind who thinks he can pass for one of us. My God, this is what I would be writing about Bukowski, isn't it? Critics who try to rise above this intellectual hardening of the arteries usually meet with limited access, or limited success, rather. Their colleagues may accept Chandler into the company of the great, but are apt to seat him at the foot of the table. And there are always those whispers. Came out of pulp tradition, you know. Carries himself well for one of those, doesn't he? Did you know he wrote for Black Mask in the 30s? Yes, regrettable. Even Charles Dickens, the Shakespeare of the novel, has faced a constant critical attack as a result of his often sensational subject matter, his cheerful fundicity. I think I've mispronounced that word, but we'll move on. And of course, his success with the book-reading groundlings of his time and ours. Critics and scholars have always been suspicious of popular success. Often their suspicions are justified. In other cases, those suspicions are used as an excuse not to think. No one can be as intellectually slothful as a really smart person. Give smart people half a chance and they will ship their oars and drift, dozing to Byzantinium, you might say. That's very true. I'm agreeing with a lot of what Stephen King is saying here. He's a very smart guy. Now, I don't agree with everything he says and other matters, but with this, I very much agree. The thing is, is that his list of the greats are different than my list of the greats. But here's the other thing. I can't dispute that Shakespeare is one of the greats. I don't love Shakespeare. I took a full course in grad school on Shakespeare only to discover that I really don't like Shakespeare. However, it's a bit like being a musician. In order to be a good jazz pianist, sometimes you have to learn songs that you don't like. If you want to be a really good jazz pianist, you have to learn a lot of songs that you don't like. You have to learn the rules. Then you can aptly break them. I'm a guitar player. I studied with an instructor for almost five years. I studied theory as well. I was in band class in junior high school. I was in chorus in high school. I know music. I'm not a genius at it. But I know music. Now, if you were going to ask me some random question about a scale, I may not have the answer for you, but I know music. I'm not the best at it, but I know it. 
I practice guitar almost every single day because I still love it. I'm not trying to become Jimmy Page. I'm trying to continue developing. I am not one of those players who just sits and noodles either. I still practice scales a lot. I still practice songs a lot. I still like to learn new songs. Not as much as other players, but you know, when one strikes my fancy, I'm like, why don't I just learn that? This is something that Stephen King says in the book. You don't have to be an English major in college to be a great writer. Well, a good writer at least. But you do need to read. There are writers out there on Twitter, RIP, who think that saying that a writer needs to read is ableist somehow. Here's the thing. If you want to be good at it, you need to read. Anyone can write shit, okay? There are, as Stephen King has said, there are writers who go through four or five years of college, they read the greats, they understand the theory of it, but they're not good at producing it. I might be one of those people, for all I know, okay? There are people who probably think I suck balls. However, that's not the point. If you want to be good at it, you need to read. And you need to read stuff that you don't like. And one of the best ways to do that is in school. But you don't have to go to school to do that. You probably have a library. You probably have access to the internet. You ha- you can download books for free and put them on your phone and read them, for God's sake. I don't like Faulkner. I've still read Faulkner. So keep that in mind. I haven't read all the greats. I haven't read every book of the canon. I think that would be impossible. When I was an undergrad, I remember one of my professors saying that they didn't know anyone in their department who'd ever read War and Peace. I've never read War and Peace. That doesn't mean I never will, but I have a copy. I think I still have a copy of Anna Karenna that's been sitting on my shelf for years and years. And I'm like, am I ever going to get to that? But here's the thing. The secret to that is read a book after you buy it. So that means don't hoard books. Read books when you buy them. Or do what I do and look through the bookstore. Pick up a book that interests you. Read the first page. If you think you'll like it, go home and download it on your Kindle. (laughs) It's like browsing electronics at Best Buy and then buying them online. Stephen King makes another great point in that he's talking about critics and their place in the world and how uh, you will never be universally loved. You may be a great, but you may not be appreciated until after you're dead. So what does that mean? Fuck the critics, okay? If they have good things to say to you, if they have bad things to say to you, fuck them. Because, honestly, there are times when people say nice things about anything that I've done artistically, and it kind of hurts more than the negative. Because sometimes people point out positive things that you didn't think about, or they don't talk about the things that you really wanted them to talk about. And that can hurt. So, don't pay attention to it. Because, remember, you're the one who wrote the work. 
if they're a, a reviewer, even if they're a professional critic, they wrote a hundred or 200 words about something that took you much longer to construct a lot more thought to construct than they put into their rag. I will say something about what Stephen King has said here. If you're a bad writer, no one can help you become a good one or even a competent one. If you're a good, if you're good and want to be great, forget about it. That's all subjective. Okay. No one in the world can tell you that you're good or bad. They can say it, but they can't change the subjective nature of your work into something objective. If you're, if you're universally reviled, I promise you there will be at least one person, if not yourself, who is a cheerleader for you. Now, don't count on that, but just know that much like political opinions... Just because the world is against you doesn't mean that you can't stand up for what you believe is right. And if you believe your work is good, that is the only opinion that should matter. I'm not saying that is some self-affirmation bullshit, okay? Because this happens to everyone in the creative field. There are going to be a lot of people who think you fucking suck. Even if you're successful, they're going to think that you suck. And you can't change that. So you need to move on. If you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all others. Read a lot and write a lot. There's no way around these two things that I'm aware of. No shortcut. I'm a slow reader, but I usually get through 70 or 80 books a year, mostly fiction. I don't read in order to study the craft. I read because I like to read. It's what I do at night. Kicked back in my blue chair. Similarly... I don't read fiction to study the art of fiction, but simply because I like stories. Yet there is a learning process going on. Every book you pick up has its own lesson or lessons. And quite often the bad books have more to teach than the good ones. When I was in the 8th grade, I happened upon a paperback novel by Murray Leinster, a science fiction pulp writer who did most of his work during the 40s and 50s when magazines like Amazing Stories paid a penny a word. I read other books by Mr. Leinster, enough to know that the quality of his writing was uneven. This particular tale, which was about mining in the asteroid belt, was one of his less successful efforts. Only that's too kind. It was terrible. Actually, a story populated by paper-thin characters and driven by outlandish plot developments. Worst of all, Leinster had fallen in love with the word zestful. Characters watched the approach of or bearing asteroids with zestful smiles. Characters sat down to supper aboard their mining ship with zestful, zestful anticipation. Near the end of the book, the hero swept the large-breasted blonde heroine into a zestful embrace. For me, it was the literary equivalent of a smallpox vaccination. I have never, so far as I know, used the word zestful in a novel or story. God willing, I never will. Asteroid Miners was an important book in my life as a reader. Almost everyone can remember losing his or her virginity, and most writers can remember the first book he or she put down thinking, I can do better than this. Hell, I am doing better than this. What could be more encouraging to the struggling writer than to realize his or her work is unquestionably better than the, of someone who actually got paid for his or her stuff? One learns 
Most certainly, what not to do by reading bad prose. One novel like Asteroid Miners or Valley of the Dolls, Flowers in the Attics or The Bridges of Madison County to name just a few, is worth a semester at a good writing school, even with the superstar guest lecturers thrown in. Now, we have some shade thrown at other authors here. Now, Valley of the Dolls, the only time that I've heard anyone say something positive about Valley of the Dolls was Peter Buck of R.E.M. He made me want to read the book, and my mother said, I don't think you'll like it. <laughs> Flowers in the Attic, I have met people who thought that that was a great book. Bridges of Madison County, sold a lot. There's a movie made out of it. I don't know what we can really say about that one. I've not read it. Good writing, on the other hand, teaches the learning writer, the learning writer about style, graceful narration, plot development, the creation of believable characters, and truth-telling. A novel like The Grapes of Wrath may fill a new writer with feelings of despair and good old-fashioned jealousy. I'll never be able to write anything that good, not if I live to be a thousand. But such feelings can also serve as a spur, goading the writer to work harder and aim higher. Being swept away by combination of great story and great writing, of being flattened, in fact, is part of every writer's necessary formation. You cannot hope to sweep someone else away by the force of your writing until it has been done to you. Speaking of good writing, I'm going to read more of on writing here in a moment, but I wanted to share with you, the audience, what made me choose an English major over a music major in college when I was 17 years old and I was trying to decide what to do with my life. Because here, Stephen King mentions the Grapes of Wrath and how Great writing can discourage you. Now, I don't know that I've ever read something and been discouraged. I don't know that I've ever watched a guitar player or listened to a guitar player and thought about not playing anymore. If anything, it made me want to practice more. So, we're going to go to that bad fiction that Stephen King was talking about. Uh, this portion that I have dog-eared in my paperback copy of American Psycho. I bought this probably in 2008. There's an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something il illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles, are probably comparable. I am simply not there. Now, those of you out there who listen to the podcast probably heard me read that back in 2020 when I read this book on the podcast, but there's more to this monologue that isn't in the movie. It's kind of cut up in sections. It is hard for me to make sense on any given level. Myself is fabricated, an aberration, I am a non-contingent human being. My personality is sketchy and unformed. My heartlessness goes deep and is persistent. My conscience, my pity, my hopes disappeared a long time ago, probably at Harvard, if they ever did exist. There are no barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it I have now surpassed. 
I still, though, hold on to one single bleak truth. No one is safe. Nothing is redeemed. Yet I am blameless. Each model of human behavior must be assumed to have some validity. Is evil something you are, or is it something you do? My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, and I have countless times in just about every act I've committed, and coming face to face with these truths, there is no catharsis. I gain no deeper knowledge about myself. No new understanding can be extracted from my telling. There has been no reason for me to tell you any of this. This confession has meant nothing. What's crazy is that there are readers out there and other writers who would hear that and think it's bullshit. There are people who read that and think this book sucks. They don't see Ellis's writing as some of the best prose of the postmodern era. And that book to me means a lot, not because it's a violent or so-called misogynistic book. It's because of the writing, the way that Ellis got into this character's head that inspired me tremendously. I've never read Ellis's work and said, I can do that. What I've done is I've said, I want to try and do that. Continuing on writing on page 147 after I take a sip of Coke Zero from the Copper Yeti. So we read to experience the mediocre and the outright rotten. Such experience helps us to recognize these things when they begin to creep into our own work and to steer clear of them. We also read in order to measure ourselves against the good and great, to get a sense of all that can be done. And we read in order to experience different styles. You may find yourself adopting a style that you find particularly exciting, and there's nothing wrong with that. When I read Ray Bradbury as a kid, I wrote like Ray Bradbury. Everything green and wondrous and seen through a lens smeared with the grease of nostalgia. When I read James M. Cain, everything I wrote came out clipped and stripped and hard-boiled. When I read Lovecraft, my prose became luxurious and Byzantine. I think the word that he wants to use is Byzantinian, but who knows. I wrote stories in my teenage years where all these styles emerged, creating a kind of hilarious stew. The sort of stylistic blending is a necessary part of developing one's own style, but it doesn't occur in a vacuum. You have to read widely, constantly refining and redefining your own work as you do so. It's hard for me to believe that people who read very little should presume to write and expect people to like what they have written. But I know it's true. If I had a nickel for every person who ever told me he or she wanted to become a writer but didn't have time to read, I could buy myself a pretty good steak dinner. Could I be blunt on the subject? If you don't have time to read, you don't have the time or tools to write. Simple as that. Uh, I am going to um, interject here for just a moment. I still read. I don't read 80 books a year anymore. You know, there were times in college when I was reading multiple books in a week. In grad school, same thing. But 
I've read, okay? Safe to say I've done it. I don't read every day, at least not novels, you know, but I do read. Something about being an English major, especially one who has spent uh, five years in undergrad, and then thanks to a pandemic and a couple of asshole professors, almost four years in grad school, when traditionally it's supposed to be two, right? That has overdosed some of us English majors a little bit. And when we get out, we don't want to do it anymore. We love writing. We love reading. But it's sort of like eating your favorite candy all the time, and then you get sick of it. You know, I like cheeseburgers. I can't eat a cheeseburger every day. I might even go several weeks without eating a cheeseburger. But eventually I'm going to come back to it. Another thing that you need to keep in mind about Stephen King is that he is, at this point, probably in his 40s or 50s when he's writing this. He's already a millionaire. His career is writing. He doesn't have a day job. Writing is his day job. And if he wants to not write a day, he claims to write every single day, even on Christmas. But the thing is, is that if he wanted to, he could take months off. He could take years off. He loves doing it. And that's admirable. He also loves reading. He has more time to read as a result of his career choice, though. You have to remember, he wrote all these books while raising children and having a wife. All that jazz. He found time to write. But he had the time to write because it was his career. (laughs) And if Stephen King wants to read instead of watch TV in the evening, that's his prerogative. I'm going to skip ahead to page 149. I don't know why I am going to... By the way, he has a whole section about TV. And he mentions reruns of Frasier and ER, which... This was before prestige television, right? Before we had Mad Men, Sopranos, and Breaking Bad. When my own son Owen was seven or so, he fell in love with Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, particularly with Clarence Clemens, the band's burly sax player. Owen decided he wanted to learn to play like Clarence. My wife and I were amused and delighted by this ambition. We were also hopeful, as any parent would be, that our kid would turn out to be a talented, perhaps even some sort of prodigy. We got Owen a tenor saxophone for Christmas and lessons with Gordon Bowie, one of the local music men. Then we crossed our fingers and hoped for the best. Seven months later, I suggested to my wife that it was time to discontinue the sax lessons, if Owen concurred. Owen did, and with palpable relief. He hadn't wanted to say it himself, especially not after asking for the sax in the first place, but seven months had been long enough for him to realize that he might love Clarence Clemens' big sound. The saxophone was simply not for him. God had not given him that particular talent. I want to, as a musician, chime in here because I briefly taught uh, guitar students, just like I briefly taught English students, And you want to go into it thinking that everyone who starts this process wants to finish it. And there is no finish. 
that means they're going to keep doing it because they have a passion for it. The thing is, is that people don't realize until they start doing it that they don't have a passion for it. They think that learning an instrument is something that you just do. It isn't something that you just do. It's not like picking up a simple craft or something. It's something that you have to put hours and years into. So I think that there are so many people out there who learn this lesson early on. And it can discourage them, and that's fine. Life is full of discouragement. But the thing about writing versus music is that you don't necessarily take lessons to write. You can just pick it up. You can't just pick up saxophone without some guidance. You can not really pick up guitar without some guidance. And there's you know, online lessons for everything, but... I think most people who are worth their salt, there's that phrase again, would rather do it with a teacher in some capacity. Some people may not have the means to do so, but, you know, you make time for it in your life and you work on it. I didn't start out playing Metallica songs on the guitar. I don't even play Metallica songs now because they bore me, but... I didn't even learn a song on the guitar until maybe three or four months in because my teacher was very insistent on learning fundamentals first. So I had to build muscles in my fingers. So I played different variations of the chromatic scale. I learned chords. Then I learned chord progressions. Then I came up with my own chord progression. Then I learned some scales. And then I learned Harbor Coat and Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. And since we're on the topic, as a musician, you may be able to play a song. There's a difference between playing a song and going through the motions and playing it like the original artist. In some cases, you can't. Case in point, recently there was a whole miniature controversy about Joe Satriani appearing on the Howard Stern show with Chickenfoot, his band with the former lead singer of Van Halen, Sammy Hagar. And Joe Satriani was put on the spots, on the spots, on the spot. Now this is a guy who I think has won a Grammy. I mean, he's put out a lot of music. He sued Coldplay for plagiarizing him. <laughs> he's tremendous. But even he can't play something by Eddie Van Halen that, you know, a lot of people have tried and failed to do. It's because Eddie Van Halen came up with it. Eddie Van Halen knows how to play it because he designed that particular sound. Conversely, you know, my favorite guitar player is Peter Buck of R.E.M. And I have seen so many different other players out there talk about how to write a song like him, how to play like him. And even though it seems simple, I'm in my thirties and I still don't fully, I'm not capable of just pulling out a Peter Buck sound and Stephen King. I don't want to be one of those people who just calls him Steven. He outlines 
this idea a bit further. I knew not because Owen stopped practicing, but because he was practicing only during the periods Mr. Bowie had set for him. Half an hour after school, four days a week, plus an hour on the weekends. Skipping ahead, talent renders the whole idea of rehearsal meaningless. When you find something at which you are talented, you do it, whatever it is, until your fingers bleed or your eyes are ready to fall out of your head. Even when no one is listening or reading or watching, every outing is a bravara performance because you as a creator are happy, perhaps even ecstatic. That goes for reading and writing as well, for playing a musical instrument, hitting a baseball, or running the 440. A sort of strenuous reading and writing program I advocate, four to six hours a day, every day, will not seem strenuous if you really enjoy doing these things and have an aptitude for them. In fact, you may be following such a program already. If you feel you need permission to do all the reading and writing your little heart desires, however, consider it hereby granted by yours truly. This is the other thing that I need to editorialize for you. You should enjoy what you're doing. However, that does not mean that everything that you do is good. Now, I had to learn this the hard way as a musician because I put out 18 albums in the span of two years. And most of it was crap. Now, there were some things on there that were passable and they got put on compilations that are available on Spotify. But, you know, the same goes for writing. And if the first finished edition or finished manuscript for Demise of the Trinity was out, I would be incredibly embarrassed now. It's such a blessing that I failed early on. It's such a blessing that I eventually rewrote the novel over and over and over again and eventually put it out myself. It's never been something that was marketable to a larger audience, hence why I wasn't able to find an agent for it. Not everything that you do is going to be for everybody. We all have these illusions of grandeur. We think that we're going to make the lightning strike in the right place the same way that Stephen King or J.K. Rowling did. We're going to be independently wealthy and be able to write at our leisure and put out books every year and la-di-da. doesn't work that way. You need to do it because you love it. So, I think that's a good place to stop. I have life to live, you have life to live. It's Saturday. Christmas is two days from now. Merry Christmas, people. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing. <laughs>